Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Since 2008, Big Think has been producing short, iconic interviews with some of the brightest minds of our time. The Think Again podcast is us shaking things up. The producers surprised me and my guests with short interview clips on every conceivable subject, space travel, xenophobia, sex, what have you. We are forced to discuss them, and there is no escape. My guest today is Michael Shermer. I think you could call him a nonviolent crusader for the light of science and reason against superstition. He's the founder of the Skeptic Society and the author of numerous books, including The Believing Brain and the recently published The Moral Arc, which Steven Pinker called a thrilling and fascinating book which could change your view of human history and human destiny. Welcome to Think Again, Michael. Oh, thank you. Okay, so I'm going to start with a sort of cheeky question here. For a lot of people on what I think we'd probably both consider the right side of history, progressive, liberal, humanist, mostly rational, the words skeptic or skeptical and moral conjure up images of frowny faces and finger wagging. What's up with that? Is this a PR problem? Are science and kitten videos culturally uh, incompatible? <laughs> what do you think? Oh, well, we like kitten videos. <laughs> well, skeptic just means uh, a scientific, rational approach to the world. All scientists are skeptics. By nature, you, you have to be skeptical because most claims that people make, theories that people test, you know, turn out not to be true. Right. So, you know, the default position is skepticism. And in science, it's called the null hypothesis. That is, whatever you think is true, we assume it's not until you prove otherwise. Uh, you go, well, I have this drug for cure cancer. Well, that's nice. It's true for everything. Sure. You know, you think sure. there's a multiverse? Well, where's the evidence for this? Well, it's just kind of a mathematical thing. Well, that's interesting. Okay, it's cool. You know, Bigfoot? That's nice. Show me, show me the body. Where's right. the body? Well, but I have this grainy video. No, no, no. Grainy videos. No, it could be a guy in an ape suit or something, you know. Right. So in other words, we need evidence. And then we'll believe. But on the other side of it, we also want to know, well, why is it that people believe these things? Right. Uh, you know, once you've debunked it, that's that's only half the... Okay, why, why are people accepting this? What's the psychology of that? Why are they not thinking critically about that particular thing, you know? And it's like climate change. You know, are you a skeptic? of global warming or are you skeptical of the global warming skeptics? So skepticism isn't a thing that's just, you know, we doubt everything. We believe all sorts of things. It just depends on the evidence. Right. And then we want to know, well, when the evidence is pretty clear to almost everybody, why is it these people over here are still not accepting it? You know, what is it? So you're looking at the psychology of that, oh, they hold certain political beliefs or religious beliefs that, you know, distort the data or that prevent them from accepting the, the data. So then we have to work at it, come at it from a different perspective. Just showing them the numbers is not enough. Right. So if I often say to conservatives, well, you know, you don't, you don't have to give up capitalism and free markets mm -hmm. and business to, you know, accept. It's either getting warmer or it's not. And in fact, it is. And here's a great opportunity to make a lot of money, you know, on green technologies. Oh, okay. And in fact, that's what most of the oil companies are doing. And most, actually, most technology companies are counting on it being real. And you know, what the one thing Elon Musk is doing, probably more than anything else, is driving all his competitors to catch up with Tesla. Right. You know, because they can see what the, what the future is. They've just been dragging their asses because there was no pressure because no one else was doing anything. Now that, you know, there's a cool electric car that can go 267 miles on a full charge. I have one of these in L.A. Oh, do you? Yeah, and you need, you need the big battery. He solved the battery problem. It's getting better and better. So I'm predicting by 2050, all cars will be electric or hybrid and alternative fuel. There'll be lots of choices. We'll, we'll be moving toward green technology. I mean, going back to what we were saying before about, you know, that skeptics believe all kinds of things. They don't simply disbelieve. In your new book, 
the moral arc, you're making a very concrete claim. You definitely believe that the world is get or humanity is getting more moral, if that's the right way to that's say right. it. That's right, yeah, that's the right way to say it, absolutely, yeah. By which I mean that we're nicer to each other. That is, we we treat other people with moral dignity and respect as we would an honorary family member or a member of our kin or kind. Basically, evolution explains why you would be nice to somebody you're genetically related to. That's kin selection, reciprocal altruism. Okay, we all, we all get that, no problem. How do you expand beyond that? Well, in a way, you have to trick the brain into thinking of this total stranger as an honorary friend or family member. How do you do that? Well, first of all, you give him a name. Oh, that's Bob or you know, Hindugu, uh, as I call it this, the Hindugu. I remember it, Hindugu, yes, yes yeah, from, the from Jack Nicholson. Jack Nicholson's about Schmidt, right? Little Hindugu, he's writing. And, and that's a, actually a telling film because nonprofits and the NGOs, non-governmental organizations, figured out long ago that if you show people a picture of 10,000 starving kids in Kenya, you know, please give, you know, they'll give X number of dollars. If you show them one little kid, here is a little Indugu and he likes to play soccer and here's where he lives in his little village and people will give like two, three, four times as much to one starving child rather than 10,000. So the reason for that is because it tricks the brain into like, oh, I care about him. That, that's somebody I can identify with. And that's, that's the long-term effect has been to expand the moral sphere, to include more people, has been to just the different technologies to get us to recognize other people. Trade, open borders, travel, internet, reading, literature, you know, literacy films, anything that transports you into somebody else's head right. makes you more empathetic to what they might be feeling. So it's something that, you know, it both... It both sort of happens naturally, evolutionarily over time, but it's something that people also can consciously drive by learning techniques for proliferating morality more Correct. effectively. Correct. And if you, even if you don't want to learn it, <laughs> uh, hmm. you know, there, there's a certain evolutionary logic to defending yourself, to cultivating a reputation of being a badass. Uh, there's a reason for that. It's because then you want, you're less likely to mess with me and respect me if you know that I'm going to kick your ass if you do something I don't like. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, yeah. Then maybe you'll be nice to me for other reasons, but you know, let's first reduce violence and get people to be less aggressive. Then let's worry about you know getting them to like one another, and 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 I'm not even really worried about that. The whole point of having good laws, you know, good fences make good neighbors, good laws make good citizens. That's where we have to start. So I talk about the Flynn effect in the book, well-known Flynn effect. Three IQ scores are going up three points every ten years for about a century. It's a remarkable thing. James Flynn attributes it to the overall lifting of society becoming more scientific, technological, and as we shift from agrarian to industrial to information over the last several centuries, your capacity to reason abstractly goes up, like by trying to navigate the New York subway system as a <laughs> Californian who only ever drives anywhere. <laughs> Wait a minute, when I came down the stairs, I turned right and then left. So which way is that train going, uptown or downtown? Yeah. I feel my abstract reasoning skills have to are a little rusty and I gotta sure. practice them. But with practice, you just do it naturally. Yeah, no, we're like rats here. <laughs> we just find the cheese. Um, <laughs> <Right>. So <laughs> so let's get to the... The, uh, the, lightning, the, the lightning round? <laughs> yeah, the lightning round of the podcast and see what surprise clips the producers have picked. I have not seen them. I don't know what they are. And let's see what the first one is. Simon Sinek, and I hope I'm saying his name right, and he is talking about the benefits of being a leader and whether there are also risks or costs associated with that. So let's see. The reason we have leaders goes back 50,000 years. When Homo sapien stepped foot on this planet, 
there were other hominid species that existed, uh, but we survived and they died off. And one of the reasons is because we worked together. And so we evolved into hierarchical animals. And when someone is more senior, we defer to them. So going back to those caveman times, when we assess that someone is alpha to us, we voluntarily step back and allow our alphas to eat first. And though I may not get to eat first, I will be guaranteed to eat and I won't get an elbow in the face. Good system. Nothing has changed in our modern day. When we have visceral contempt for some of our leaders, like we have visceral contempt for some of the banking CEOs and their disproportionate salaries and bonus structures, it's because we know that they allowed their people to be sacrificed so they could keep their bonuses and salaries. The leaders we admire, the leaders we follow, are the ones that we know would sacrifice their interests to take care of us. That's the deal. That's the anthropological definition of leadership. It is always balanced. The perks of leadership are not free. They come at the cost of self-interest. They come at the cost of taking care of those in our charge. It was a beautiful application of evolutionary psychology to business. Uh, you know, grounding the fact that we have a human nature in our evolutionary past going back 50,000 years and how everything's changed in the modern world, but our brains are still wired up to care about reputation. A leader has to balance between being selfish and being altruistic. But, you know, these are basic evolutionary psych type uh, arguments. I thought, I thought that was really, really good. That was well done. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I'll admit to being a little skeptical about that as a, you know, it feels a bit like we are all a pack of dogs, which I think we are to some extent, <laughs> yes. but yeah. you know, I'm not sure that like all human behavior in all contexts is governed by the alpha pecking order. Certainly uh, some corporations like Google have tried to get away from that. You yeah. know, they have a much more what's called horizontal management system where, I mean, you still have leaders, but most of the people are pretty autonomous in what they do. Uh, you know, the old IBM military-style structure of a corporation in the 50s, what he's talking about there probably applies more to something like that than, say, a modern Google. But of course, you know, Larry and Sergey are still in charge. So right, there's right. an alpha male up there somewhere. <laughs> and in some cases, an alpha female. <laughs> uh, absolutely. No, and that's changing. And the feminization of corporate America is, has a long ways to go, but it, it will make things more egalitarian. You know, and then there's co-ops. The CEO, John Mackey of Whole Foods, you know, he has this program set up at Whole Foods where no one makes more than 19 times the average base worker's pay. And it's transparent, so everybody sees what everybody makes. And that's to avoid that idea that our leaders are corrupt and stealing our stuff. And, and there's also a sense, that evolved sense, of how much is too much? Well, we kind of have, a, you know, 19 times more, you know, 100 times more, 200 times more than I'm making. That, that just doesn't sit right. It just does not feel right. Right. I even have some of my like hardcore libertarian pro free market capitalist friends say, yeah, you know what? That's just gone too far. You know, these guys making 500 times what the average worker makes. You know, that's just too much. Even in a society of abundance like we have now, it still feels wrong if somebody has orders of magnitude more stuff than other people. Going back to something you were saying before, you know, when we were talking about sort of the quote unquote feminization of corporate culture and maybe of society more generally uh, as a result of more female leaders being in power. And there's also been neuroscience research trying to contradict some of the like men are from Mars, women are from Venus yeah. stuff. So I don't know, it's early days on that. Well, I mean, take someone like Margaret Thatcher. She was as badass as Reagan was <laughs> right. and uh, you know, kick ass. But on the other hand, she's working in a pretty much an all men's world. 
In that world, that worked. But in the long run, we know that women tend to vote for less bellicose, less, they're less likely to vote to invade Iraq, for example. So they also tend to vote for less harsh criminal sentencing, that sort of thing, which has gone too far. Uh, but I saw, you know, apropos to today, is, uh, you know, uh, Angela Merkel just won Time Magazine's Person of the Year. Right. She has a PhD in quantum chemistry. You know, when are we going to get a leader with a PhD in, in a science? And I think Jefferson was probably the last one, and he, there were no PhDs back then. So, yeah, it must be nice to be from a country where your you know, leader is super smart. And, you know, she opened up the borders to the refugees. You know, that was a right. less of a maybe a masculine thing to do. I don't know. But I think in the long run, a more moral thing to do. All right. So shall we see what, we, what okay. the next clip yep, is? Sure. All right. This one is Roger Stone who is the host of The Stone Zone. Okay. Can't stand negative campaign ads. Turns out the more you hate them, the more they work. Okay, <laughs> so we're still in politics. Oh boy, okay. Oh boy, let's see where we go. Politics in this country is not beanbag. It has always been rough and tumble. It's always been a contact sport. When Abraham Lincoln was running, his opponents had handbills saying that he was a half-breed, he was a mixed race, for example. So all that's really changed is the technology. Now we use the internet, we use television, we use cable. In those days, we used newspapers, we used handbills. So it's always been a part uh, of our society. Now, the very same voters who tell pollsters, I hate negative ads, I hate the, the, the negative tone, those are the same voters who can tell you exactly what was in those ads because they've absorbed them. The general uh, consensus in my old business, because I worked as a political strategist and consultant for many years, is that a voter needed to see an ad 10 times before it permeated their consciousness, before they started to retain the facts. The sad truth is negative advertising, which I prefer to call comparative advertising, it works. That's why politicians use it. Voters who, who tell you they're not interested still retain the facts. Leaders, you know, and people who want to be the president of the United States, for example, have a moral responsibility not just to do what works, but to do what might set a positive tone for the nation and not divide people further. Mm -hmm. What do you think about that? Well, obviously, that'd be nice, but as he just said, the negative ads work. He's right. He's absolutely right, because I'm old enough to remember, you know, how, the, the nasty ads and so on. And you know, every election, you know, people go, this is the worst election I've ever seen. Oh, my God, it's never been more important. It's never been so hostile. You know, it's like they, they say that every time. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, the campaign is less important than what the person does once they're in office, how divisive they are. I do think Bush was a little uh, divisive in office. I mean, the us and them and good and evil and all that stuff. I think Obama's probably gone in the other direction too far. As you know, He's afraid to use the word Islam. He doesn't want to offend anybody. You know, threading that needle's hard. I like uh, Majid's comment, you know, it, ISIS doesn't have everything to do with Islam, but it has something to do with Islam, <laughs> clearly. There's a middle ground there that we can take. I think most rational people can go, yeah, yeah, that's right. He's not being a bigot by saying that. Right. He's just identifying the issue, yes. And I wish more Islamic leaders, you know, get on board, like Majid and, and uh, Ayan Hirsi Ali. We need the really the imams and the more secular Islamic leaders to stand up and say, you know, don't do this. This is bad. This is wrong. It's immoral. It's the misreading of the Quran, whatever that would be. I mean, I loved Ayan's, you know, five points of reforming Islam, but, you know, I think the first one is, you know, give up the belief that there is a supernatural deity. <laughs> well, you know, say, say that to Christians. <laughs> right. You know, you can still be a Christian, but you can't believe that Jesus was the Son of God or that there even is a God. 
then I'm not a Christian. I mean, that's the, you're not even the, yeah. you know, why bother? It's like, yeah, well, yeah, okay. <laughs> but, you know, that's going to be a tough sell. Yeah, I think this a lot about, you know, like the sort of strident modern atheist movement that we had going strong for a while. It's sort yeah. of died back a little, but, you know, like Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens, and I believe you may have been a voice through in yep. that as well. Yep. Yep. And, uh, you know, I agree with a lot of what is being said, but at the same time, you just can't, go to half of the world and be like, you know, your grandma's no good, right. you know? Yes. <laughs> yeah, we know the psychology of persuasion and influence, you know, like Robert Cialdani's work, his great book, Influence, everybody should read this. You know, if you tell somebody, you know, you're an idiot, the wall just goes <laughs> up, you know? It's like the end of conversation, it's over. Right. You know, most people just double down on their beliefs if you tell them they're full of shit. So, you know, just... Okay, how do you do it? Well, there are tried and true strategies. You know, first of all, if you treat people with respect, if you listen to what they have to say, tell me what. Okay, you believe in God. I don't. Why, why, why do you believe in God? And then I'll tell you why I don't. And we have a conversation. Right. The most you can hope for is, you know, just sort of planting the seed of doubt. Of course, they're hoping for the opposite. And that's okay. In a free society, you know, they, you know, just marketplace of ideas and see what happens. Right. But it also helps, I think, to restate what somebody believes. Because of this, you know, you think there's a gut. Yeah, yeah, no, no, that's not quite what I'm saying. Okay, what is it you're saying? Because if you don't do that, then you're gonna end up attacking the straw person, because they'll go, well, I never said that in the first place. Right. Well, I just wasted my time, okay. Or, like what I'm able to do, because I used to be a born-again Christian, I used to be a born-again Christian. What, you were? Yeah, oh yeah. You believe Jesus? Yeah, I accepted Jesus as my savior. Right. You know, I said John three sixteen for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, blah, blah, blah. Oh, wow, okay, uh, well, what happened? You know, like, this couldn't happen to me, could it? <laughs> right. Uh, well, yeah, actually, I'll tell you what happened. And you, know, you say it in a nice way. I started reading, and, and I looked at this, problem of evil, and the, you know, the first cause, it didn't convince me anymore. The prime mover, no. You know, the fine-tuning wasn't quite, you know, I didn't accept that argument. The problem of evil is a big one, you know, free will. And, you know, you just sort of go through them, and they're like, huh, okay. And maybe you've planted a seed there. You know, they're not going to sit there and go, yeah, you know, you're right. I'm giving the whole thing up. They, they, almost nobody does that. Right. But maybe they, in, in the quiet of their home, they're thinking about it. And then six months later, a year later, they go, yeah, I guess I don't believe anymore. Usually what happens is people just quit talking about it. And the fastest growing religious group in America are the nuns, you know, the N-O-N-E-S, people that have no religious affiliation. Now, they're not necessarily atheists, agnostics, free thinkers, skeptics, but they have no affiliation with the church, and that's good. Right. You know, so maybe they're going to wean themselves off that. Now, maybe they replace it with Deepak Chopra's quantum consciousness or something like that. <laughs> okay. It's a step in the right direction because, you know, Deepak's a peaceful guy. And, yeah. You know, quantum consciousness doesn't drive people to fly planes <laughs> in the building. So that's a step in the right direction. But a rational, naturalistic worldview is what we're aiming for in the long run. Right. Maybe you take baby steps to get there. On that note, shall we move on and yep. see what our third conversation is yep. going to be about? Cool. We managed to not talk about Donald Trump somehow in that last one, which is great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's covered 24-7 in the mainstream. Yeah. So we're going to get John Cleese, who was just in here recently. Fabulous. When is it okay to steal ideas? Okay. I think if any young writer, someone who wants to become a writer or a performer is listening, then what I would say is it is so difficult at the beginning, particularly as a writer, to do good written comedy that I suggest at the start that you steal or borrow or, as the artists would say, are influenced by anything that you think that is really good and really funny and which appeals to you. And if you study that and try to reproduce it in some way, then it'll have your own stamp on it. 
But you have a chance of getting off the ground with something like that. But if you sit down one day, never having written before with a pencil, or a computer, but I write with a pencil, and you say, right, I want to write something completely new and original and very funny, you can't do it. It's like trying to fly a plane without having any lessons, you know? You've got to start somewhere, and the best way to start is by copying something that is really good. But people seem to think I was advocating stealing in general. No. No, once you've got off the ground, you'll develop your own style. You don't need to steal. Better if you don't. I read uh, Cleese's autobiography before he came in here, and as a young writer, he was like, okay, I love this performer and I love this scene and I'm gonna steal this idea, but when I completely repurpose it, it's going to become my own. I think for most of us, it doesn't work quite like that. It's more you realize the influences afterward or you, yeah. fi you find yourself. Yeah, absolutely, and then, and then you do evolve. I don't write like Gould, I write like me. <laughs> and uh, you know, you have your own voice, and then people try to copy me, and so and it just sort of that's how it goes. Right. Yeah. You know, so that's that's okay. That is how it works. You know, the word stealing. He's a comedian, so he's kind of using <laughs> that in a tongue in cheek. It's it's not stealing, and that would apply to ideas too. I mean, what we want people to do is to copy our ideas of like science and reason and logic and rationality and and no god and no supernatural. In a way, it's the same kind of thing. You know. Well, I want to be like you. Well, okay, this is what I believe. You know? Right. Well, why? Okay, here's why. Oh, all right. Yeah, it's called teaching and learning, basically. Right, that's right. <laughs> it's what edu it's called education, right? <laughs> yeah, Cleese has just solved the education problem. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's see if we can go in a different direction with this. When you sit down, for example, to start a new book, how do you know what's the next book? Like, are you sitting there banging your head on the table? Um, yeah, usually I know, but I use the, the previous book, the end of the previous book usually is a launching off point, in part because as you, as you write, you accumulate too much material and you go on little sidebars and off directions from the main thesis of that book. And then something starts to shape up, you know. So like Why People Believe Weird Things was mostly about the paranormal, the supernatural, a little bit about creationism. And that led to, well, what about God? I mean, I didn't really discuss God much in Weird Things, so that the next book, How We Believe, so I don't believe in God either, well, then where does morality come from? So then I wrote The Science of Good and Evil, okay, well, then how do we structure society based on second? Well, then the moral arc is kind of this equal, the science of good and evil. And in between there, I had the mind of the market about behavioral economics. It was sort of a little, another one of those little sidebars like, yeah, okay, that doesn't really fit in any of these other books. Someday I'll write a book about that. Just sort of has a natural organic flow to it. That's like fine. I couldn't tell you what two books from now will be, but the next book is on called Heavens on Earth. And this is a spinoff from the moral arc of you know, my last chapter on utopias and dystopias mm. and protopia that got me thinking about, you know, this is a bigger problem than I thought, and this book's getting too long already. <laughs> my editor's like, Shermer, stop writing. <laughs> Send it in. Okay. <laughs> this will be the next book then. And threw all that material in there. That is to say, the idea that we can achieve, a, either go to heaven or create a utopia here on earth, right. this has caused enormous problems historically. There is no perfection. There is no heaven. And, but the, the striving for it leads people to do crazy things. Michael Shermer, thank you so much for being on Think Again today. I've really enjoyed oh, talking with you. You're welcome. And thank you great. for having me. I, I, I love Big Think. This is great. And that's it for this week's episode of Think Again. 
2016 is shaping up to be an amazing second year for the show. We have a bunch of exciting guests in store for you that I'm going to keep top secret until very soon and a shiny, awesome new theme song that I'm very, very excited about. If you like the podcast, if you're new to the show and you have not yet had a chance to rate or review us on iTunes or wherever else you're listening, I urge you to please take five minutes and go do that. It makes a major difference in terms of the show's visibility in the very crowded podcasting landscape. Next week, there will not be an episode of the show, but we will be back the following Saturday and regularly every Saturday thereafter. See you then.